Hey, Richard Gottlieb. Chris Bird. How you doing? I'm doing great. Can you guess who we have on today? Oh, yeah, you're my co-host. You yeah. can guess. <laughs> it's, it's Jim Breslin, who just got into the Toy Hall of Fame. I think it's really amazing that he's being inducted into the Hall of Fame 100 years after... <laughs> The company that bears his name, Pressman, was founded. So that was founded in 1922 by his father, who was inducted into the Hall of Fame in 2009. And now we're making it a family affair. Jim, welcome. Thank you for being with us. Um, it's uh, my pleasure. Thank you, Chris. And thank you, Richard. It's, it's so uh, timely to be here at this moment. I appreciate your thoughts there on the 100th anniversary of Pressman Toys beginning and just the fact that I'm just overwhelmed by the fact that the industry has honored me this way. I, I honestly couldn't believe it. I still can't believe it, <laughs> but it's a great, great honor. And, and well and well deserved. And we're going to get into all of that in a moment. But this is the Playground Podcast with me, Chris Byrne, my co-host and cohort, Richard Gottlieb. We are brought to you by Global Toy Experts, the Toy Guy and marketing and media agency, Chizcom. And Jim, you grew up in this business. What was it like back in 1922? No, I'm kidding. What was it? What was it like for you as a kid to grow to, to, to grow up in the toy business? Well, there were definitely some fun times. I mean, I remember going to the showroom at 1107 Broadway as a kid and playing knock hockey there and doing all kinds of things. As we've gone back and looked at the history of the company that we've done by visiting Rochester and the Strong Museum up there and all the archives they have, it's been an amazing trip for my wife and I to, to see things that we never knew about how the company began. But for me, growing up in the industry, you know, we it had a, it had its perks. So, Jim, can you tell us uh, what was going on in 1922 with your father and how he happened to do this? There's a photograph that uh, Bill Pressman, my father's younger brother, who I met literally for the first time about 15 years ago, brought a picture of, of 1916 of my father in front of a store called the Pressman Sporting Goods and Game Store, a novelty store that was in, in Manhattan. He said that he showed a picture with my father, his father, Abraham, and a, a fellow named Neil Lebowitz. And so my father had this interest in the, in the toy world in 1916, six years before he started a company called J. Pressman. And he went into World War I, uh, served his time, and when he came out, there was Neil Lieberwitz again and my father in one of the playthings pictures showing how my father was starting a company uh, called Jay Pressman. He merged with a company called the North American Toy Company. All this is new information that we learned visiting the Strong and visiting their archives uh, that goes back over 100 years of, of playthings magazines, the, you know, the industry trade journal. So that's how my father started it. And the, and the initial products he had were things like a, a Zellophone. Who knew that the Zellophone was the beginning of, of the Pressman Toy Company? What is a Zellophone? A, a Zellophone is basically like a xylophone, but made for, for, for kids. So it was a musical instrument. And this was one of the first ads we saw from, from Jay Pressman was, was a Zellophone. Just to set the table a little bit for listeners, during World War I, uh, prior to World War I, Germany was, the, was like China today. And made the bulk of the world's toys. And 
the United States during World War I embargoed German toys. And of course, the war flattened the German toy industry. And your father, like many other Americans, helped actually launch not just their individual companies, but really launched the American toy industry right after World War One. You're, you're absolutely right. Um, that's part of the history I've been learning, that between tariffs to certain countries overseas and the fact that no more product was coming in from Germany and some other places, uh, it's when the toy industry, the, the TMA, was formed right around this time. And there were a lot of things that really helped the industry begin during that time. Some things that he did, like a, a home laundry set, something for a girl, I guess, to emulate the mother. There was a lot of that kind of product. There was a product uh, to become a school teacher. But then there was also things, you know, as time went on, uh, you know, pop guns to M- M- G-Man with uh, handcuffs and, and guns <laughs> uh, to pretend you're Dick Tracy, all, all kinds of crazy, wacky things. And one of the things that your father did was he was really one of the first licensees in the business. He really jumped into understanding the power of characters, especially with Disney. And today we forget how important Little Orphan Annie was. And that was, that was big for you guys. And he also pioneered some manufacturing as well. So he was really a bit ahead of the time at his time. Yeah, you're right. Um, you know, the industry reflects the media uh, in so many ways. And like you said, Snow White. Uh, was one of the Disney things that he did very early on. There was the story of the quintuplets that was not a license, but it was a big, big, on the cover of Life magazine, these five children that were born. The Dion quintuplets. Exactly, the Dion quintuplets. So, of course, uh, he did a set that included five little bisque dolls so that you could play with with the quintuplets. He did something with the World's Fair in 1932. So there was a lot of licenses and also copying things or, or in, enhancing things that were happening in the, in, the, in the world in general. Jim, was there a breakthrough moment for Pressman Toys? Yes, uh, there definitely was. My father was known as the Marble King, and uh, he had gone into marbles in a big way prior to finding this game called Chinese Checkers, which, of course, had nothing to do with China. And there's different stories about how it came about, but the best I can put together is that there was a salesperson traveling in the Southwest in Colorado somewhere who found this game, brought it back to my father, and my father didn't create the game, but he brought it to the populace. And Chinese Checkers was such a huge hit that it really put him on a whole different level. And other people could make Chinese Checkers and still do, But because my father actually had invested in part ownership in a marble factory, he was able to get all the marbles he needed to become uh, the Chinese checker king of the time. And that was in the 30s. So he actually named Chinese checkers? He gave it the name? As far as we know, that's the case. He called it uh, Hop Ching Chinese checkers. Uh, He called it, there was different versions of it. Um, At first, it wasn't Chinese checkers. It kind of evolved into that. The hop chain checkers, then it was Chinese checkers. <laughs> so uh, well, there's quite a bit in the industry that we cannot do today. Right. Um, <laughs> oh my gosh, it was definitely a different time. And for people who are listening to this who do not know how important marbles were 
in the late 20s and the 30s. It was a huge collectible. It was on a scale of, say, a Pokemon in terms of what people knew and, and the different styles of marbles. And my mom, who was born in 23, once described to me her entire middle school marbles hierarchy, which was quite impressive. But And so it was a huge deal for your father to be the Marble King. It was. Uh, certainly not something I experienced firsthand, but seeing the ads he did and the publicity he did on, on marbles and how important it was to the company, uh, it, it's, it really put him at a different level. Where was he getting the marble? Where was the factory located? Uh, West, West Virginia. And I think even when I was running the company, we were getting marbles from Vitro Glass, I think, or something like that down in West Virginia. Now, now Jim, if I'm recalling correctly, isn't your mother also in the Toy Hall of Fame? She's not. But well, she should be. She was <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's funny you say that. I mean, the last time my mother came out in the public, when she was 97 years old, she attended my father's induction into the there. Hall of Fame. I was there. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. And she stood up and, you know, certainly was very proud of the moment. And, and that was the last time she went out after that. I think about six months later, she passed. But one of her little quips as we were there was she said, well, how come I'm not going in? But <laughs> <laughs> well, 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 Jim, I, yes, I, I remember her that night. What yeah. she was that how striking looking she was. And yeah. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that story when your father passed away and I believe you and your mother were suddenly left with a company to run? Well, my mother was left with a company to run. I, I was 10 years old at the time, um, so a little bit young, but still <laughs> involved in the business. But my mother, the last few years of my father's life, he had heart disease. And there are letters that we found where my mother wrote him as he was in Florida saying, don't worry, I'm taking care of the business. You know, this happened, this happened, that happened. We got sales in Pennsylvania. Uh, I'm going to go visit a licensing person. I mean, when she came into the business originally, which happened when Pressman, Jay Pressman became Pressman Toy Corporation, which was in 1947, she immediately became involved in the glamour and in the, in the designing end of the industry. She came from fashion. And so she had a whole different perspective on what, how to attack the industry. And it had a lot to do with the graphics and the, and the product. So she was very much involved in that. And when my father passed, she was ready to take the reins. She had a, probably a difficult first year, I'm sure, with financing, with banks. I talked to one of the people who helped her during that time, who was the father of one of my friends. And he explained how she put everything into it to, to get the financing and to get the business going. And it was a year later after my father passed that she got her legs going. And the, and the famous picture we have is, because she was always in showbiz and designing. She, she, she had this uh, memory set, uh, Dr. Freud, uh, Dr. Frond uh, memory uh, game. And he, she brought an elephant to Toy Fair, a live baby elephant. Oh my goodness. Wow. Because <laughs> elephants never forget. Right, right. Did the elephant yeah. have to take the stairs or did he? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it ever made it upstairs. It was definitely in front of the building. That's where all the excitement happened, right? Right, with I remember. The, with the uh, costumes and all this. But, um, <laughs> you know, she had she was a tremendous player, and she ran that business for almost 20 years. One of the few, you know, one of the three women in the industry. So 
we have photos of her at UJA meetings where she's the only woman in the room. Uh, she's pictures with her with the salespeople. She's the only woman in the room. But she had a style and a flair, and she did what she needed to do in terms of cozying up to a buyer and saying, hey, you know, buy this checker set. We're better than their checker set. Was there any yeah. notable uh, products uh, during her uh, reign? As the yeah, queen? yeah. I, I think, you know, it started with the doctor and nurse bags, right? Uh, the doctor and nurse kits. Those, those were certainly her strength through the, what she brought. She always claimed that because her children were afraid of going to the doctor, that she came out with these sets to make them more comfortable with the whole practice. Pressman was the first one with doctor and nurse kits? I, I don't know if she was the first one, but she was the first one who actually did a doctor bag. Right, in the, the little 1950s. black bag that they carried. It was yeah, in the early yeah. 1950s, and it was it was huge. It was huge. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you know, following that, she did a dentist set, <laughs> which is when you look at it today and see what was in it, it's quite amazing, you know. Uh, and she also did a barber set. I remember as a kid being afraid to go to the barber. She came out <laughs> with a barber set. <laughs> Jim, when did you join the company? Okay, well. Um, 1971, I was graduating from Boston University and not knowing exactly what I was going to do. Uh, my brother said to me, whatever you want to do in life, uh, it's good to learn how to negotiate with people. And if you go into the toy company, you'll experience some of that and you'll get experience you know, in the, in the business world. So in 1971, I joined uh, Pressman Toy. Factory was in Brooklyn at the time. And my mother had me based there. And there was a gentleman who had just left the company. They had started a division selling to schools. So that was one of the things that she gave me as an assignment was to cultivate that business as much as you could by selling to some of the school districts in New York and around the country. So it kind of got my feet wet. And I lived in, in the factory and saw the manufacturing side and the shipping side and all of that. And it was a, a great experience. You really refocused the company to, to focus on games, because I think most people today who are in the toy industry or haven't been in the industry a long time, when they think of Pressman, they, they do think of games. And that's something that you really spearheaded. So after the time that I was there, um, there was a, it came a point in 1976, 1977, where we moved the factory from Brooklyn to New Brunswick, New Jersey. And my mother saw my, how we accomplished that under my direction. So she, at that point, put the reins in my hand. And honestly, there was a gentleman named Shelley Greenberg who uh, came in at the same time in marketing and sales. And together, we developed the strategy on board games. The company had primarily been focused on play hour on preschool toys before that. And the problem with preschool toys is there's a lot of inj injection molding, a lot of cost that goes into development. The products have a lifetime. They don't necessarily live forever. We had a pay phone. You know, you can imagine how that would do today. <laughs> it was in the line. <laughs> and so board games are a core business. Once we started with Triominoes, which had been in the line for about 10 years. Right. So we started to emphasize Triominoes. Then came Mastermind. Then came Rummy Cube. And that was the core business. And games are a strength because they pass on from generation to generation. And we, we saw that. And, and we w wanted to build around that. One of the things you did that, that I always thought was 
was pretty amazing from a merchandising standpoint is you did palette programs. You had a lot of classic games. You had chess, checkers, all of those things, and you you would sell them by the palette. That that was pretty new when you started doing that. And and you'd, you'd walk into Walmart and you'd see a palette of Pressman classic games right, right there on the floor. Right. But but how right. did, how did that come about? You know, checkers and chess and all that. It is a very it's a commodity business, right? A generic business. The artwork that we had had before I started to run the business was more graphic and design. It never really showed the product. Uh, we wanted to show the product in a way that it made it almost like a generic, like an A&P Campbell soup. Uh -huh. So we made the product big photography, big letters. It, it gave the sense of value. It gave the sense of uh, like a proprietary product to, to that store because it was so generic. But... More than anything, it combined the product line, the checkers, chess, Chinese checkers, all had one look. And that way you could merchandise it on a pallet. You can merchandise them on an end cap. I remember going into Clover stores in Philadelphia. I don't know if they're still around, um, but Not they anymore. had a whole wall. <laughs> Not anymore. I didn't think so. <laughs> we can go on on that list. Yeah, but really. They, <laughs> they, they had a wall of, of red boxes and it was it's just striking and it, and it worked fantastic. Well, and. You know, here we are, what, 50 years later, 40 years later, and in the line has not changed, uh, you know, at all in all that time. Jim, let's get into something controversial. Uh-oh. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> Cut cheesy versus per cheesy. Yeah. Well, there's that. <laughs> <laughs> the game the game of India versus per cheesy. The, that was the, one of the early, uh, early, my, my father, uh, I, in an interview I did with my cousin, when my father went into the Hall of Fame, he, he said that my father was known as the pirate. Whenever he touched something, they had said, uh-oh, that thing's going to be 99, sex, 99 cents next week because, you know, it's only for $2. Because, you know, he touched a game that somebody else was making, and he knew that was something that he could do a little bit better or cheaper. So, Jim, you continued with licensing, and, and one of your big licenses was who wants to be a millionaire? And I remember when that one game of the year, you were a little bit excited. Uh, <laughs> yes. For those of us who grew up in the 60s and 70s, those TV home games were huge. And this was one of those. How did you develop that? How did that come about? Because it really was a big deal. That was the single biggest game we ever had uh, in one, you know, for one year, millionaire did the same amount of business that the entire company did the year before. Wow. Um, it came about, we had a relationship with a company in England called Upstarts, a small game company, but we were friendly. And Millionaire was about to come over to the U.S. from England, where it had been a huge success, and also in Australia and some other places. And the head of Celador, a gentleman named Paul Smith, was a wonderful guy, visited me in the New York office at 205th, and said, this game is coming, it's going to be huge, and we want you to have it. And, you know, we had the reputation that we had succeeded with Wheel of Fortune and Double Dare and Jeopardy, so we knew the game business. And Paul Smith said, you're advanced, your guarantee will be $250,000. And I said, what? And he said, you won't be disappointed. <laughs> and I believed them. Uh -huh. And so we did it. And we sent one of our designers over to the UK to help develop the game for the US with all the questions because it had the different levels. So it was a whole sophisticated 
question and answer uh, system. But we did the game. It had a little bit of a slow start, and then it just took off. I mean, the show, the TV show, as you remember, was on five days a week. Right. And that night that came to the toadies, listen, I was hoping we would win because I thought if we don't win this one, I don't know when we are. Because <laughs> right. that was certainly one, and it was just so exciting to get that. Jim, you had probably the grossest game pre-poo. <laughs> <laughs> In the pre-poo days, and yes, Huey Louie, yeah. Uh, and um, can you? Did you have any trepidation or about that, or were you were you pretty confident that you were speaking to what kids really wanted to be be doing? Yeah, yeah. You know, um, we tested that game with kids as we did in those days with focus groups behind the mirror, you know, behind the glass, and the kids were in the room, no parents. Just the moderator. We tested maybe five or six different games, saw what they liked, and there was it was a clear cut case that Gooey Louie was a huge winner, <laughs> no question. And what we learned later was that the game had been tested by practically every other game company in the country. Um, and I don't know all the stories, but I know some of them tested it with parents and kids. So when the kids were playing it, they wouldn't want to tell their mom, I love this game with the gooey thing coming out of his out of his head and in the nose and all this. So they passed on it. But um, we didn't and we didn't have any trepidation. We knew the kids loved it. And the commercial was great. It was a great commercial. Our did agency did. Any, Jim, did you get any pushback from the press or anything? Nothing that I recall. Not a piece. You know, I was I was there at the time and I remember I was one of the first people to ever take that on TV. And the whole idea of, you know, you pick his nose till his brain explodes. It was kind of like it, it was what I always call a loud naughtiness because the, the anchors would pretend to be shocked by it. But it was also I mean, it was also pretty silly. You're pulling these long green things out of this big nose until and if you pull the wrong one, his head pops open and his brain flies out. Why is that not comedy? I It is comedy. Exactly. It's a great payoff, right? <laughs> and, you know, one of the stories that I've learned going back over the history and writing, going back to 100 years of the toy company, which, which we, are, we are doing a book right now. My wife and I have been developing a book historical of the 100 years. And going back and learning about Gooey Louie was that the design group, Steve Meyer from Meyer Glass, said that the idea came from one of the inventors in a dream during hay fever season. <laughs> and, that's, and that's that's what generated the, the whole concept. Marvin Glass during the 60s was the was the crazy brain behind so many of those skill what we call skill and action games, Mousetrap, Crazy Clock, all all of those Kerplunk games that are still played right. today. And Steve yeah. Meyer was part of that group, you know, he came from there. Yeah. Jim, you uh, recent years made a decision to sell your company. Can you tell us a little bit how you came to that decision, how you chose Goliath? Can you tell us a little bit what that passage was like for you? I had gotten to a point in my life where I thought I had brought the company as far as long as I could. I wouldn't say it was a struggle, but I wasn't having as much enjoyment as I was having earlier. You know, we had had such great successes and we had grown the business from $5 million, $4 million when I took over to $100 million the year Millionaire came out. But basically, we're a $50 million business. And my wife and I enjoy travels. My daughter was graduating from college. It just seemed like the time was right. 
And over the years, there were different times that we had had people look into us and investment groups and so forth. But it just didn't seem like the timing, you know, was there and the people were there. But when it came time, I had some discussions with another toy company that had come to me. And so I entertained those discussions and we got further along. But along that way, Goliath and Adi Galad heard the rumors that we tried to keep quiet, but somehow they escaped our circle. And after I denied the truth that we were looking to, to sell to Adi a number of times, the NDA, the non-disclosure period, ended. And I dis had discussions with Adi. And I had known Adi for decades. He had licensed Triominoes from us in Europe. And I trusted him. I knew him. Basically, Triomino's deal we did on a napkin, a paper napkin in a Lebanese restaurant. That's how we signed the Triomino's deal. And he basically said, I'll do whatever the deal was. I'll make that deal. And knowing Adi and knowing everything about him and the company, I said, if you can do it financially, which I didn't know if he could or not, he, he did. In terms of a sale of a company, I've heard stories. Nothing could have gone better than this. Jim, you're one of the last companies to enter China for manufacturing. And we're at a point in history where some, due to a lot of problems with the supply chain, people are starting to think, you know, maybe we should manufacture closer to home. What is it like to manufacture domestically? And what advantages and disadvantages do you see based on your history? Some of my best memories are our factory in New Brunswick where we brought automation to the point where a bag of triominoes would never be touched by a human hand until it went into the box. Gradually, things moved to China, but you have so much more control when you're manufacturing in the States. Things go in cycles, and I don't know if things will come back in the, in the toy industry to the States, but if they do, I would think it would kind of happen the same way that it went the other way, that is gradually. For us, anyway. It's costly to, to invest in the U.S. to start, but it's certainly a lot of advantages. And uh, if I had a, a factory right now, I think everybody would be thrilled <laughs> to be manufacturing here. Jim, you mentioned before that you were coming out with a book on the 100th anniversary of Pressman Toy. Tell us a little bit about that and, and a little bit about what it means to you that you are about to be formally inducted into the Toy Industry Hall of Fame. Uh, my wife and I have done a lot of research. We've put together with Alan Axelrod, who's co-writing a book, to uh, talk about the 100 years of Pressman Toy, which will primarily be, uh, you know, a big photo a photograph book, a lot of photographs, a, you know, a coffee table book. But there's a lot of history there about the company, and uh, we're, we're excited, you know, to put this together. It will come out sometime next year. You know, being inducted in the Hall of Fame at this point is just the... This is the coup de grace, you know, I mean, I can't imagine. I, like I said, I can't believe that. So, Jim, we're going to ask you the question that we ask all of our guests on the Playground podcast. Tell us a secret. As much as I can think of one, one of the best stories I've heard recently, we had a game called Ring Around the Nosy. I remember and, that. Uh, on it, right? So kids wore a mask that had an elephant trunk that was kind of soft and rubbery that they used to pick up these donuts that it was, it was, like, it was, like, bobbing, it was like bobbing for apples, yeah. um, right? So I asked Mike Moody, who uh, we licensed the game from, from Seven Towns in England, and he said, and I quote, the game evolved from an idea submitted by a German inventor of crazy toys named Hans Ulrich. 
At the time, it was not a preschool concept, but rather a more adult theme. Ah! You leave that for your imagination. (laughs) I don't know what you're talking about. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. (laughs) Anyway, um, I appreciate being here, talking about the company. It's wonderful to talk about the history. There's so much love there between the people I've met in the industry and and the people who helped get me into the Hall of Fame. David Norman spearheaded a lot of what happened here, but the Goliath family has been wonderful to us. Some of the people that have helped me get to where we are, I thank all of them. There are so many, I really shouldn't start naming them, but I think they know who they are. Mr. Bob Moog, who called me to tell me from the TIA that I was in the Hall of Fame, was a special phone call. It's been a sweet ride and one that I love reliving at times like this with you guys, and I appreciate the opportunity to do it. Jim Pressman of Pressman Toy, congratulations on the 100th anniversary of the company, on your being named to the Toy Industry Hall of Fame, second generation. We really appreciate your taking the time to talk with us. My total pleasure. Thank you both, Chris and Richard. Thanks. This is the Playground Podcast, and we'll be right back with the end cap. And now we come to the part of the show that we call the end cap, where Richard and I talk about issues in the toy industry. And, and Richard, we just talked to Jim Pressman, and it got us thinking about the earlier days of the toy industry. Probably the 1920s, or 100 years ago, were probably uh, one of the most important moments in American toy history. It was really when the American toy industry was established. For all extents and purposes, it barely existed prior to World War I. That's true. Uh-huh. And so it was, a, it was a decade of big personalities in the toy industry, and new product concepts, and you being an historian on the toy industry and have written a book about it, could you paint a picture for us of what the toy industry was like in the 1920s? Well, I think one of the things you you pointed out is we did have a lot of domestic manufacturing beginning, and in and around New York City, out in Hollis, Queens, we had Ideal, we had uh, in... Pennsylvania and down south, we had a lot of manufacturing beginning to happen as we started to see a domestic toy industry. As you pointed out when we talked to Jim, a lot of toys were either homemade or came from Germany. The higher end toys came from Germany. But the thing about the 20s was we were seeing a dramatic change in childhood and toys were really designed to help kids prepare for being an adult in the culture. And as Jim pointed out, we saw kitchen sets and homemaking sets for girls. Erector sets were designed for boys. And in fact, the instruction book of the early erector sets says, hey boys, it was unthinkable that a girl would actually build something. So it was a very different time culturally. And there were all kinds of things that we didn't know about in terms of safety. In fact, there was a Gabriel set at the time where you made soldiers out of lead. My father had that and... (laughs) We actually heated it up once. I've still got it. I would not plug it in right now. But basically what you did was you sat over a smelter as you melted <laughs> lead pellets and you poured them into a mold. And <laughs> we didn't know wow. that you shouldn't have lead. But again, years later, we'd see that in creepy crawlers in the 60s from Mattel. But that whole idea of making things was was really part of it. We have a lot more safety issues now than we did then. And talking to Jim, I, I mentioned that uh, the 1920s were an era of big personalities where we, 
A.C. Gilbert, Jack Pressman, uh, Louis Marx, among others, were bigger than their companies. It was about them more than it was uh, the product. Do you have any insights on what was going on at that time that these people were so prominent that, that Louis Marx ended up on the cover of Time magazine? I think what we saw in the 20s was the emergence of celebrity culture. We saw movies. We saw people like Mary Pickford and Charlie Chaplin and all of these people becoming larger than life. And in fact, there's a famous picture of the United Artists group playing marbles at the time. So it really became a time when we started to look at big personalities in the culture as aspirational, as successful. It follows that people in the toy industry would adopt those big personalities as a means of attracting attention and selling. That was an era of a lot of protective tariffs on foreign-made goods in the United States. And as a matter of fact, the United States toy industry was very concerned about low-cost goods coming out of Japan. Sound familiar? And from a devastated Germany whose economy had, had flattened and were, were producing toys desperately at very low prices. Do you, do you have any knowledge of that history? Well, after World War I, there were indeed tariffs that were designed to protect the growing U.S. toy industry. And not only were there tariffs, but there was a whole program that was sponsored by the Toy Association at the time to promote buying American toys and that buying American toys was a patriotic act. So it became a big deal to, to buy American. And of course, you couldn't have Germany that was coming out of being devastated by the war, trying to dump low cost goods in the United States. So that's when the tariffs actually really worked. We saw the same thing happen, as you mentioned, from Japan in the years after World War II. So there have been times in history when protecting domestic industry through tariffs has been really effective. They were certainly effective in keeping out foreign products and allowing the American toy industry to grow at a time where it was a bit fragile. But we today live in a global economy, as we're all very aware. We don't like tariffs. American consumer doesn't like tariffs. So is there anything we can learn from that period? Well, I think when all elements of production are located in one country, as they were at that time, the tariffs made sense. But today, we live in a global interconnected toy industry. And if you put a tariff on one component, even if it's assembled in the United States, that's going to raise the cost and not necessarily protect the industry. The function of a tariff is to really protect a domestic industry. And when we don't have a purely domestic industry any longer, it's harder to protect that. And it becomes kind of muddy as to what the tariffs are going to do. And in the last administration, the tariffs were presented as punishing competitors from around the world, but they really weren't effective at doing that because the whole world was interconnected. So you really sort of cut off your nose to spite your face, as my mom used to say. Well, Chris, thanks a lot for giving us some perspective on that important period in history. And I think one of the things to remember is that as you look back at the catalogs from the 20s and you look at things, is that the toy industry always reflects the culture and the culture our children are growing up into. So you can probably apply that same metric to looking at any period in history. And I expect 100 years from now, when they're looking back at this time, they'll be doing that as well to see, to understand our culture a little bit better. And I'm sure that they will mock 
you and me. Uh, you know, I would expect nothing less. But we're glad that you're not mocking us. We're glad you're <laughs> listening in. This is the Playground Podcast with me, Chris Byrne, my co-host and cohort, Richard Gottlieb. We are brought to you by Global Toy Experts, the toy guy and marketing and media agency, Chizcom. Please share this with your friends and colleagues and fellow toy people. And we hope you tune in next time.